Hey guys, my name is Alex and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I am not going to be talking in this episode about the Russian-Ukrainian war, but I just, I feel like I have to point something out. I'm recording this on uh, February 24th, the day that Vladimir Putin has finally launched a full assault on the sovereign nation of Ukraine, which he claims he can do because Ukraine doesn't actually exist. Fucking terrific reasoning. Anyway, this is now the fourth script and the second recording of an episode in which I tried to respond to the whole situation, but now the game has changed because it's fucking happened and it's not just about buildup. And the approach that I took in the previous recording, the one I did yesterday, was that, you know, for days, for weeks really, we kept expecting the invasion to happen. It kept getting postponed and postponed again. And meanwhile, expecting it to happen, I was miring myself in news coverage, and I was learning a lot, and I was growing from the experience, definitely, because this is a history that's completely foreign to me, and that I never really had an incentive to go, to, like, venture in and learn about it. But apart from learning a lot about it, and apart from really growing from a sort of newfangled live-action understanding of geopolitics and how nations get reeled into one another's um, affairs, another side effect of being mired in that material is that I was relentlessly shitting my pants, almost on an hourly basis, which didn't seem productive. So yesterday I recorded an episode about how, yes, this shit is very uh, upsetting, it's not fun to look at it, but it is important to pay attention to the news when these horrific world events are going on, not only because it's reality, but also because it opens your eyes to the fact that whenever a tyrant stands up and does something absolutely atrocious, most of the people on Earth, no matter what the crisis at hand is, they are committed to solidarity and compassion and so on. But then, this morning, I watched footage of bombs pounding the shit out of the fucking Ukrainian border, and I, it was just, I was just gut-punched. And it's completely flipped my focus because for the past couple weeks, I've had a powerful fucking masochistic compulsion to keep looking at the news, to keep in my mind sort of imagining the horror that could potentially unfold. But now that things have gone where they've gone, I am easily keeping the fuck away from the news because when you're watching it unfold, you also have to deal with the uncertainty of where it's going to go. But wherever it's wherever it's going to go is kind of where I want to be. I want it to be tomorrow. I want it to be next month, where the verdict is. I want to know where the chips have fallen, and then I want to go to that chip-strewn place. My friend Steve Donahue is a book critic in Boston, and so I asked him, like, what if you, let's say you could flash forward 50 years, and you could sit in a room for a couple of days and read one comprehensive history of something that's going on now, in our modern moment. What would it be? What do you want to jump forward and learn all about how it started, how one thing led to another, and how it turned out? And Steve's answer was something like characteristically nihilistic. I don't know if he'd be thrilled with my saying that, but he said he would like to read an account of how it is exactly that America succumbed to fascism, or something like that. Obviously, I'm going to feel really fucking silly if I listen to this podcast in 50 years, and yes, America has succumbed to fascism, but still, 
I don't think that's really going to happen. It reminds me, though. It reminds me, this is neither here nor there. But there's a story of the writers David Foster Wallace and David Lipsky. This is like 1996. They're late for an airplane, and so they're sprinting through the airport. They're dropping things as they go. They're vaulting over furniture. They're shoving people aside. And then they reach the gate just in the nick of time. And they get on board, and they put their things down. They get situated in their seats. And as the plane is taking off, Wallace turns to Lipsky, and he says with a smile, Boy, are we going to feel silly if this thing crashes. My dad was from Boston, and when he'd see Kennedy on TV, when I was a, you know, a young kid, he'd look at him, he'd go, What a fucking head of hair. What a fucking head of hair. You're going to have no hair. You're going to be like me. And he's the president, and you're not going to be the president. Speaking of disasters, my friend Pavel Klein and I watched the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre last Friday on Netflix. Incidentally, every time I've mentioned this to someone at work, they were like, oh, really? There's a new Texas Chainsaw movie? And yeah, it's on Netflix. Apparently, I just saw some data saying it was like the biggest Netflix movie of the weekend, which I think is mostly attesting to the fact that Netflix had a bad weekend. Is the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie any good? Not really. Is it bad? Not really. I love horror movies and slasher movies, but I feel like you have to move the goalpost in such a weird direction. When assessing their quality, there are now three movies in that franchise that are called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And this new one, which is also called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is supposed to be a direct sequel to the original, which is also called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which just feels so fucking lazy and careless and bizarre. And incidentally, that's what George Foreman did with all of his children. George Foreman, the boxer and the grill master, he has like six or seven kids and they're all named George Foreman. I think they all have different middle names and that's what they go by. Like, I'm pretty sure that George Foreman, the boxer, has one, maybe two daughters named George Foreman. And obviously I'm inclined to joke about this, anyone would be, but I guess it does make some sense because like he wants his kids to be able to ride that name in their own careers as they're sort of navigating public life. But also, it's kind of narcissistic to name all your children you. Part of what I don't like with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise is that it doesn't really have like any characters running through the series that you, like, you follow those characters and you care about them. It's got Leatherface, it was a monster movie, so obviously the monster is supposed to be what attracts you, but, like, all, Leatherface, like, swings a chainsaw. That's it. He doesn't have any character. And in a slasher series, yes, you could argue that a, an interesting, an iconic villain is all you need. And then you just put new, immediately sympathetic human characters up against that villain. But Leatherface is all, isn't iconic for anything. He's iconic for his face and for his weapon. It's like if there was a guy in your neighborhood who had two noses and a katana, and you moved in and you said, who's that guy? And then your neighbor's like, oh, him. That's all two-nose katana. And that was it. Like, he didn't do anything. Like, he never talked, and all he did was just smell things and swing the katana. Dude, a couple years ago, I was watching this documentary about Friday the 13th, like the whole franchise. I think it was called My Name is Jason. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on the show before, but I think it bears repeating, because this was the stupidest fucking documentary I've ever seen. The movie is supposed to be an exploration of the franchise and of, of the nuances and how it developed with time. But they didn't, like, interview any experts. They just interviewed fans. And it wasn't even, the, like, it wasn't a documentary about the fandom. 
itself, like those wonderful Trekkie movies where the filmmakers go to a Star Trek convention and they just like focus on the question, what does Star Trek mean to its fans? This Jason documentary was just like fans talking about, oh, how the character of Jason has evolved. There is no character of Jason. He never says a word. He doesn't emote. He does not have a face. I would have much preferred a documentary that's just about like zealous Friday the 13th fans. Because there's like a fuck ton of people in the world who have like Jason Voorhees tattoos and like their bedrooms and cars are all decked out with Jason shit. I remember seeing one of those super fan like mini documentaries. It was about a woman who was the self-professed biggest fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And you know what? Like, more power to her because over the course of that documentary, she proceeded to demonstrate, without a fucking doubt, she is certainly the biggest Ninja Turtle fan on the planet. But I also just enjoyed, like, how she, how she felt compelled to argue her candidacy for being the biggest fan of Ninja Turtles. Because it seems like such an obscure thing to fall in love with, but then I figure, like, it's, it, it's weird to think about this, but it's almost certainly the case that even the most passing piece of entertainment that you enjoyed when you were younger, that piece of entertainment is someone's, like, foremost treasure on Earth. Like, I have to imagine today, in 2022, there's at least a dozen people in the United States whose bedrooms are decked out with, like, promotional material for Men in Black, or Gone in 60 Seconds. Another cozy but kind of disturbing documentary, Portrait of People, and, like, it's cozy to my heart because it was, like, the first thing that I rented on the Netflix mailing service when I was 15, but it's called Confessions of a Superhero. It's a collage portrait of these three or four guys who dress up as superheroes and then pose for pictures on Hollywood Boulevard. And there's this one dude who steals the show. He's obsessed with Superman, and he's very skinny and tall, and he's got, like, the curlicue in his hair. And he dresses as Superman, and he takes photos with kids. And there's a part in the movie where the filmmaker is walking through this dude's apartment, and it is cramped to capacity with thousands of Superman toys and posters and lunchboxes. That dude died of an overdose, like, not very long ago, and he died while bending into a dumpster, I think? I don't remember the exact details, but there were these photos on the internet that people had been posting, because I guess that documentary has a cult following, and people around Hollywood had seen this dude in his Superman outfit, like, emaciated in kind of a methamphetamine crack way, and just sleeping on sidewalks. Apparently he had relapsed and it was really bad, and then one night, like, he had a girlfriend and he was staying at her place, and one night he went, I don't know if it was like a laundry chute outside or a dumpster, but he lifted the lid and he bent halfway inside to get something, and then he just died. Like, he slumped over the edge of this giant container and his legs were dangling out, and that's how he was found. Anyway, yesterday I was sitting at my desk and a, and a cockroach crawled over my toe, which is something I've known was coming for a long time. I live in Florida, there's roaches everywhere, I'm deathly afraid of them. I've gone seemingly my whole life with everyone around me, like, at, at a whim, just belting out stories of how their flesh came into contact with a cockroach. It always seemed like anathema to me, and I knew it was gonna happen, never knew how I would react to such an experience, but now I know, because it happened. I was at my desk, I was typing, and I felt a little tickle on my toe. And I didn't think much about it, I kept typing, and then I looked down, and there was a cockroach, a very small one, on my toe. Obviously it was a small one, I don't have to tell you that, because as you can tell, I'm still alive. But I saw the roach, I saw it was on my skin, 
I registered the sort of spindly sensation. I don't know where this came from because I don't talk this way, but I, I screamed out whore, whore, fucking whore, which is not a word that has come out of my mouth casually, probably since high school, maybe early college, which by the way, I genuinely had like typical cliche sexist ideas. When I was in high school, like when if if the notion of a woman having sex with like more than a handful of people, like I genuinely thought that they lost some irredeemable moral thing until I got to college and I started like reading more widely and listening to people talk and sort of letting just sort of the phrase Marilyn Robinson uses. She uses it in reference to like spiritual questions, like the confounding questions of why does God do this? Why is the universe created in such a way as to permit certain atrocities that we're not talking about today. And the phrase she uses is, I've learned with those questions to liberate them into indeterminacy. Any exclusionary school of thought simplifies the life of whoever gets the better end of the stick. And in some respects, it simplifies, although it limits and worsens, the lives of those who get the short end of the stick. Because what stereotypes do in society, whether stereotypes of nationality, gender, race, age, what they do is they vanquish ambiguity. It seems to me from like my own first-hand experience and from my reading and my engagements with people is that three of the top stressors in life are the following questions. How do I behave in this situation? What should I expect of people in this situation? And what do other people expect of me in this situation? Well, in a fucking racist or sexist or ageist or ableist society, those questions have answers. Here are the abilities and limitations of group X, group Y, group Z, and it spares you the burden of having to think for yourself, which sounds like such a fucking reductive Instagram thing to say, think for yourself. What I think people mean when they say, oh, you need to think for yourself is you need to resist the very tempting convenience of telling yourself that not everyone is a mystery. Because the reality is that they are a mystery. And if you have to go through your life thinking and, well, knowing that everyone is a mystery, that nothing is guaranteed, that, as Mark Twain says, all generalizations are false, including this one, well, it means that you can't really make plans for shit. It means that no matter how much money you save in your savings account, you could go broke like that. It means that no matter how doggedly you run and monitor your diet, you could get a heart attack like that. It can be exhausting to think that everyone in the world is different that nothing is guaranteed, that everyone in the world is characterized by a unique blend of experiences and desires and needs and fears, but, I know that's daunting, but if you are freaked out by that idea about the endlessness of human variety and the fact that everyone around you is capable of shit that you did not anticipate, then perhaps you'll find solace in knowing that there is at least one person that is like, you can like totally humdrum and predictable. One particular type of person on the planet who is an absolute gnomish, narcissistic, degenerate, skid mark, cliche piece of shit. And it is the tyrant who edifies his ego with war. Thank you.